think they're causing some harm in this field, but um, I appreciate the take that you offer on it, so thanks for sharing it with me. How would you characterize my take? I mean, balanced of, there's some, you know, there, there, I mean, you've got some folks who I would kind of put borderline men's rights. They're not borderline, a, they're men's rights. They're men's rights, let's <laughs> call them that. And then there's others who are, you can't even talk about masculinities because men always have power and there's no, no such thing as healthy masculinities and don't even try to bring that conversation up, which I think also, you know, pushes in, us into a corner. Um, so I saw in your, in your take, um, I saw the gender equality is a huge issue that we need men to be part of and there's a reason to talk about healthy masculinities for men too. So um, I was pleased to see you know, that you found a balance that feels like where we sit. So. You know what? I feel like crying. I mean, that, that what you said really touched me. I, I don't know why. Maybe because it's been partly some of like the men's studies people don't want to be in the book because they don't want to be associated with the men's rights people. And so there's been some of this tension. And for you to say what it's all about, which is working for a common goal, which is equality for everyone, it yep. is touching to me. So thank you. Yeah. I, I didn't know it was so emotional for me. Um, okay, so let's start at the very beginning. Where and when were you born? Bakersfield, California, 1961. My dad was a social worker, um, a mostly female profession. His caseload was uh, was a lot of migrant farm workers, which our family has some experience. I mean, we are, you know, Okies who went to California um, during those years. So the topic touched him, um, and he was chasing down, well, one, trying to provide services for children who were victims of abuse or neglect, and he also had some work on uh, men who weren't paying child support. So, anyway, conversations about that yeah. led to I was in Bakersfield, why my parents were in Bakersfield, rather, and uh, part of the reason I'm in this space. What month were you born? I'm interested in your astrological sign. Oh, sure, May 24, so I'm Gemini, and whatever I'm rising, I can't remember. <laughs> I'm a Gemini too, and Jack Kammer is a Gemini, and I think John Stoltenberg is a Gemini. So it makes sense because we're into communication. So it makes sense <laughs> that we're that we're doing this kind of work. Um, what what did you learn growing up in Bakersfield about what it is to be a man? I'm asking you that because I just interviewed a young man who grew up in Mumbai, and he heard a little bit when in elementary school if someone hurt themselves playing soccer football don't cry like a girl don't be like a girl but then it stopped and he, there was never this don't be like a girl pressure and you know people the laborers from the small villages walk hand in hand hold hands in the city and no one goes yeah. oh my god yeah. they're queer so um I'm really interested in what what you learned about being a man, and if you felt yeah. that kind of pressure, don't be. Uh... I mean, you know, I had, I had, I, and I just, you know, hinted that I had the, um, you know, the amazing fortune of a father whose profession was in the care field and the care of children, and 
who you know affirmed, and he was a he, he changed you know his vocation from um, scholarship college football player who thought he wanted to do sports either as you know sports as a livelihood as a coach or some kind of thing or a professional if he made it that level, but he got injured um, and said, well maybe it's not sports and you know kind of thinking about his own family history at least as he told told me. Um, social work called out to him. It was, um, and he attributed that to his mom, of kind of seeing his mom be a, you know, just such a community kind of organizer and clustering people together, helping households who needed help, um, and that he saw that as a, you know, as a profession for him, in spite of the fact that social work even today is about 95% women, depending on the state and the. Um, so I would say, you know, I had a very clear role model of a man who um, was able to, you know, was both had had a, you know, a football player's neck and build, um, and yet also just, you know, very caring and said, caring is my profession, and um, that was a huge contrast. After Bakersfield, we moved to Texas. Although Bakersfield really is the Texas of California, that's situated in, as you well know, better than I. Um, we moved to Texas, first to Dallas, and then to Houston, um, and it was a bit of a shock to me. I, we also lived in Southern California for a little, a little bit, not very long, but a year or so. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of looked at my identity more as, you know, surfer guy, um, you know, Southern California rock music rather than country stuff, and went to a place where, you know, pickup trucks, guns, boots, cowboy hats. Um, and real, real bullying based on if you weren't that. Um, so like pushed up against a wall as a 13-year-old with two guys who were obviously in the cowboy side of things. They were called kickers back then. They kind of hold me against the wall and said, what are you, a hippie or a kicker? And it was, you know, pretty obvious with my bell-bottom jeans and longish hair that I was not a kicker. But to have affirmed that I was a hippie was to invite, you know, that need to come further into the middle of my gut. Um, and so went, yeah, whatever, I'm a kicker. Um, so, you know, the model that I learned at home was a pretty big contrast from a lot of the, the stuff I saw, I saw at school. Um, I ended up, you know, I played, I had a short career with, uh, with uh, U.S. football at 13 and 14. I was never quite big enough. I was fast enough, but not big enough that I could outrun many bigger guys and said, well, this is not the sport that I want to be in. So I was tennis and theater and creative writing, um, all stuff that doesn't necessarily match with pickup trucks and cowboy boots. But I always felt supported from my dad in, you know, in most of that. Um, there was no kind of, no, you got to do this or... So, yeah, I, I you know, I felt myself quite lucky that I had that background. Um, and then, you know, one of the key events that, I mean, apart from my father, um, another key event was in my high school in 1978. Um, I was one of 200 young people who witnessed a school shooting um, in our high school cafeteria. Wow. Uh, I mean, as I say that, you, can, you kind of already know I'm talking about a man with a gun who used it against others. This was a young man who used a gun against one other um, saying that he stole his girlfriend and he shot him four times while 200 of us, actually a little bit less, 100 or so of us, were watching. Um, the, the, hor I mean, the, 
the not very thoughtful way that my school dealt with it, because this was before we called them school shootings, they sent us outside for about half an hour, and then they sent us back to class and said, uh, we were two adjoining high schools, and the student who was killed was from the adjoining high school, as was the young man who killed him, and basically said, yeah, no, no students from our high school, Ailey Felsick, were involved in the shooting. Um, we regret the incident, you know, back to class. Um, and so, you know, just kind of the putting together of there's something up about manhood that is just tragic and horrible. Um, that together with just about any girl that I dated in high school had some story of a guy who tried to force sex, a father at home or a stepfather at home who used some kind of, not, I mean, not, there were more the, the date, dating issues than probably at home, but, you know, a girlfriend who, yeah, her dad was abusive to her mom. Um, and a couple of girlfriends who always had some story and, you know, told me their strategies for, like, how to stay safe. And um, most of them were not about demanding consent. Most were about, like, how do I run away from this guy? Um, so, yeah, all that stuff made me say, there is something up with men. Um, how do I talk about this? Where is there a feel for me to talk about it? Um, I just wanted to say as a footnote that I think kicker refers to shit kicker. Is that right? Well, you know, there's a radio station in Houston, Texas called KIKK. Um, so it was, it, there's, a, there's a possibly more generous view that it was those who listened to country music, but were necessarily cowboys. But yeah, it also crossed over into the shit kickers. You're going to get the shit kicked out of you. Um, you know, some days it was definitely the shit-kicking, some days it was more just a tribe that you had to declare your allegiance to, or you could declare your allegiance to. So, yeah, it, you know, cowboy boots, hat, um, and then, you know, I also want to be, be very thoughtful. There was, you know, folks who would say that's their tribe who were not aggressive, and were nice guys, and could cross tribes and have conversations with me, um, you know, and would even take me to, you know, country dancing if I wanted to go. So, now, you know, I also think just there's a huge amount of diversity among, um, among that, you know, among that tribe of manhood to call that. Right. So where did that lead you in terms of your university experience? So, um, I mean, it, yeah, then first was first or second year at university, there was also a, uh, I mean, yeah, what do I call it, a sexual assault in my dorm. Um, group of five guys got a woman drunk and, uh, you know, had non-consensual sex with her. Um, some of us commented, she did not bring any charges, this was way back when, um, at least that I know of, no charges were brought. The big change that my university did was uh, from then on out in dorms you had to sign in a guest. That was all they did. Um, so again, you know, I didn't necessarily find there was a political space for work on this. I wanted to move to Latin America to be a, I was going to be a journalist, right? I was of the Watergate generation. Um, and where, you know, power for change <laughs> happened was journalism. So I did an undergrad in journalism. Where um, was, what university? I went to Texas A&M, University for Undergrad. Um, and, you know, trained to do investigative journalism, which meant everything from research skills to I did some surveys, some online surveys on gun control attitudes and on uh, um, abortion rights, um, pushed my 
you know, fellow journalist that I became managing editor of the school newspaper, and we had a budget to do to do research and to cause trouble. Um, and among those things, we like doing studies and writing about gun control, for example, like an op-ed. I got threats. I got letters that said, if I see you walking out from the newspaper at night, you know, I'll show you where guns go. Um, so yeah, I think you know, sort of honed on a okay. There's this is this is where activism needs to go. And then I did my master's in public policy, um, looking particularly at uh, global south issues. I was interested in working on um, issues in Latin America, and particularly in women's rights and children's rights in Latin America. So I did a master's at Duke. Then I went into Peace Corps. Um, coordinating work with street children, um, including some work with girls who were being sexually exploited on the street. Um, in Rio? So this was first in Honduras, in Central America. Mm -hmm. um, that then took me on a pathway to work with uh, Advocates for Youth, which is a reproductive rights and sexual health organization based in Washington, D.C. It was kind of one of the few places where there was discussions about masculinities and sexual health. Um, that was 29 women and me working on the topic, um, which is you know pretty standard for the gender equality spaces where I've worked over some years. Um, and I think really important to kind of say, yeah, what is it like? What what does it mean to be a male ally? Um, that work took me to open an office for advocates in Colombia, in Bogota. Wow. And then from there, I had a job offer to um, with UNICEF in Brazil. And so I moved to Brazil in 92 to coordinate a study with UNICEF on girls who were being sexually exploited on the streets here in Rio de Janeiro and also in Recife. And in both cases, I said, you know, we, we were pretty clear after a few nights on the street what the trajectory of girls, what led them to be there, sexual violence often at home, um, a, you know, a push and pull factors, let's say. But I said, why aren't we talking to the men. Um, why aren't we talking to the men who are there at the bar paying for sex with 15-year-olds? And I also became interested, you know, kind of watching some of the men and seeing a lot of men did pay for sex with girls, a lot of men didn't. They just went to drink with their buddies. And so, you know, part of the questioning was, well, why do some men and some men don't? Um, and I think, you know, maybe opening my eyes to, as we look at questioning around masculinities, to say, Let's not give it more power than we should. Um, there's a huge amount of resistance and uh, and diversity of men's responses to patriarchy, um, and I think you know a pretty obvious insight. But beginning to ask questions around the the, the plurality of masculinities, the same time that you know folks uh, Raymond Connell, whose you know work was kind of the the anchor of our field, um, I, I had the amazing opportunity for. You know, to work with local street educators, et cetera, to kind of say, so what does this mean for us trying to think about prevention work? Um, so yes, moved to Brazil with a, you know an opportunity for work. Met my partner, who you know we've been together now for 28 years, um, an amazing activist in her own right, <laughs> um, and you know a journey on thinking about my role as an American man. Thinking about my role in a relationship in a you know in a culture that I'm not from, um, so a lot of personal and political came together. Um, I just wanted to go back at two little footnotes. I don't know if you heard about a campaign 
in a Texas university or universities. Uh, a young woman started it where it, she would carry, they, women would carry dildos on their backpacks and it was something like Glocks or whatever rhymes with a name for a phallus and they said you yeah. can carry guns, we can carry dildos. <laughs> no, I haven't, but I love it. It's probably <laughs> University of Texas at Austin. That would be where I would guess it started. Um, my my daughter now goes there. By the by the way, she's doing her master's degree there. So I, oh, wow. of course, it would. I, I I will I would be willing to wager that that started at UT Austin. <laughs> I can I can look it up. And the other thing I wanted to go back to, in terms of women participating. It's been really interesting to me that people who teach men's studies say that most of the students are women. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if the men, Michael Messner, whose story is very similar to yours in terms of his father and sports and whatever. Yeah, um, we, we just to meet and compare. Oh, good. Okay. So, yeah. Um, they, the, um, they, Messner thought it was either because the men thought they didn't need to be learning about how to be a man, and I thought, yeah, and maybe they don't want to be seen as queer if they're in a men's studies class. Any, yeah. any, what, what do you see in terms of um, men's participation in gender equality activism? Because you have the, the bird's eye global view. You know, I mean, when when I I mean, when we started Promundo in '97, um, you know, there there and when I began to connect up with gender equality activism in Brazil, you know, and I gave you that example of working at Advocates for Youth, a group that works on sexual reproductive rights and health. You know, there's 27 women and me. Um, you know, I think it all the above. I mean. Who, who has the most to complain in terms of talking about what mas the harm that masculinities cause, you know, I would say are women in general and probably, and, and gay and, and cisgender men, or well, sorry, trans men, not cisgender men. No, but you, no, could, I, you could argue that cis men are more damaged because they die six years younger and are more likely to commit suicide and are cut off from their, mo I think you could make yeah. a case that that's who's but, the most but all stuff that we're, all stuff that masculinities tell us not to talk about, whereas, the, you know, the feminist movement for women has been, we want to make gender visible, and for, you know, LGBT plus individuals, you know, they would say, we want to make homophobia and transphobia visible. Those of us who are, who are cisgender heterosexual men, we're basically told, you know, question, you don't talk about that stuff. Um, it's mm. not, it doesn't get you points anywhere. It, you, they're accused it, of being whiners. That's what I've heard. Yeah, whiners. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, whose side are you on? Is the other one, right? Oh. Kind of, what do you, yeah. I haven't heard right? that one. You know, whose side are you on? What do you, you know, what do you call this? I hear that more as a joke. But, yeah. You know, to joke, do much. Ha -ha. Freudian, you know, Freudian uh, uh, reading to go, you, you know, there's a bit behind every joke. It's a little bit of, oh, yeah, yeah, what are you, you know, whose team are you on? Ha, ha, ha. Um, so, you know, I think it's all the, and then I do think it is, it is an uncomfortable space to be in as a cisgender heterosexual man to hear the conversations around 30% of, you know, of men in, in, a, in a heterosexual relationship using violence against a female partner. The rates of harassment, the fact that we we do you know 
far less of the hands-on care work that we, you know, all the things that that a, a gender equality analysis require. It's very difficult to sit in the room for a lot, lot of cisgender heterosexual men and go, oh yeah, I should not be defensive about this or deny this, but to look and say, what what's my role here? Um, it is not easy to sit in the room and hear that. It's really, you know, it's really easy to to kind of say either, well, not me. So to jump immediately to the, what's those other men? Or to suddenly find that, you know, the back of the room, your shoes, your phone, anything looks really much more interesting than having to have a conversation about power and patriarchy and privilege. Um, and then I think, you know, we as a field, and I'll put myself in the field, we, it, it's, it is difficult to have, like to say, to, to use inviting language. And it's, it's far easier to do the calling out language than the calling in language. Here's what we need from you. Mm. Um, and here's a language that can help you find that you have a role in this space. And then to say, and it's going to be really hard. You're going to get, you're going to be on the end of anger. And that anger is real. Um, it's not really about you. <laughs> And yet, the, the angry looks may be coming against you. How do you feel about Are you ready for that? Um, by the time we've gone through that list, there's like four men left in the room. Um, up until recently, and I think you know, there's a lot of advancing in the last years, and let's give credit to spaces like NOMAS in the US, and then internationally, Promundo is co-founder of the Global Mini-Gage Alliance that you've probably heard about. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's now a global network of 700 plus individuals from 50 plus countries, um, several hundred NGOs working on this topic of, of engaging men for feminist allyship. Um, and I think trying to figure out what's the language of accountability, what's the language of giving, you know, helping men find, helping cisgender, heterosexual men, and men of all of all identities to find a space of what it means to be um, a, an ally, a feminist ally, and what it means as well to be an ally for for, for LGBTI plus rights, um, and to acknowledge that it's really challenging stuff, that there's inward work to think about my own power privilege, how I was raised, and then there's outward work to say, you've got to be part of the politics. Um, and men engage, I won't speak for them, I'm co-founder, but I'm now a board member and I you know, want to give the space to those who run it these days. But I do think we've had the benefit as men engage of a lot of years of political fighting <laughs> and, and politics in this space, good and bad. And so I think you know, there's, a, there's a really thoughtful, you know, a lot of effort that's gone in from the men engage staff and the board and the members on what you know, what healthy, thoughtful male allyship looks like. Um, mm. um, uh, you mentioned male privilege. Before we do more into the activism organizations, people, people like Paul Nathanson said, you know, it's only a few men at the top who are benefit from the patriarchy. But then other people, feminists, say, no, all men, especially white men, uh, have male privilege. Um, and you know how I see that is trans women have a really hard time sounding like women 
in my view, because they make assertive statements, declarative statements, and they make they are comfortable with monologuing. So to me, that's an example of male privilege. But do you agree or not agree? I mean, yeah, I think we're you know those words, and I used them before as well of you know the patriarchy and power and privilege. Um, they're you know they're big amorphous systems, and what they mean for us as individuals is you know, is, is far more complex than just those three clusters of systems. And I, you know, I think, I think Raymond Connell did a, you know, a very thoughtful job of talking about the patriarchal dividend. And, you know, I do, I do affirm or I do support her view that, yeah, all male-identified individuals have some piece of that dividend. Um, and there's some men that have about that much, and that might be a man of color in a favela here in Rio, where I am at the moment. And then there's, you know, Bill Gates or Elon Musk or, you know, whoever you want to put there, who have truckloads of it. Um, and then, you know, at the intersectional lens, and of course you get, you know, all kinds of complexity there. Even those men who have the tiny little, or even some men who have the big piece of privilege, there's also, I think, equally important, which is the cost of hegemonic masculinities. Like Gates just like, getting divorced. Like, like divorce, like our emotion, you know, like growing up believing that we don't know how to express ourselves emotionally in thoughtful, deep ways. Like getting beat up on the school ground because we didn't act in what was supposed to be, you know, hegemonic masculinity stuff. Like that four years of, of lost life on average in the U.S. because Six. of multiple things. Six. Yeah, because, you know, one, one year is probably related biologically because the XY chromosome is a is a worse model, um, you know, in terms of defense <laughs> against genetic, you know, and, and some diseases, whether COVID included in those, right? Yeah, right. Um, the other three years are, you know, lots of intersectional stuff, what you work in, how much you drink, how you eat, whether you smoke, substance use, suicide. Risk-taking. Yeah, risk-taking, being in the military, you know, the list is long. Some of those are choices that men made, and some of those are life directed you to live in a low-income neighborhood where, you know, where violence is much higher, or your only pathway to stable income was being in the military, where your chance of, you know, and if you didn't have a college degree, your chance of deploying and being on the front line is higher than the middle-class guy for whatever race who went into military, you know, officer training. Um, so it's all that stuff. And I think, you know, I'm just, yeah, I suppose I'm sort of tired of the arguments that say privilege, no privilege, and say, yeah, of course there's privilege, and there's cost. And we have to do a complex equation with anybody or any category of manhood to look at, you know, and they both go together, and I'm tired of a political argument of, of is there more this or more that? Um, it's both. It's, a, it's I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm tired of the zero-sum game argument of it, that, um, that you can, you know, that if you have privilege, there's no cost. Um, yeah, saying that, or that if we talk about the costs that are real, we don't talk about the privilege. And so it's just like, could we, <laughs> my argument would be, we, we need to say both of those things are true, hold them together at the same time. I'm no less a feminist by talking about the costs of patriarchy to men, um, and I can be on men's side and be a feminist too. Um, and I can be on women's side and care about men too. <laughs> right, um, that's, that's yeah. my position. In a nutshell, yes. Um, you mentioned women's anger, and I think that's what came out from the second wave of the women's movement. And um, 
what Robert Bly and the mythopoetic branch of the men's movement, other men I've heard talk about it, maybe the APA guys, is that grief is what the men's movement is encouraging men to get in touch with. Do you agree with that? I mean, I suppose more to be, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, cause it, it's, it again feels like a, like a forced choice. You know, I do think, I do think grief, or if you want to say, you know, some psychologists refer to as the normative trauma of growing up male, of being forced to cut off parts of your, your ability to be empathetic, to express emotions, to have deeper relationships and connections to others. You know, there's some psychologists, there's some folks in APA who would call that kind of normative male trauma. Um, and I, you know, I think I, I would say I can agree with parts of that. Um, I think, you know, I, I think I also want to look at, um, and as men do get in touch with it, whether that's grief or thinking about, I guess I would take it to the point of saying, I want a heightened awareness of how you were raised in a gendered way, in gendered ways. And that in that heightened awareness, you both look at harm that's happened to yourself, you look at harm that you may have carried out inadvertently or deliberately to others, you look at privilege as well as you look at cost. And so I suppose the, you know, the political strain of masculinities that I looked toward that wasn't even around masculinities was looking at what, and, and another reason that I was attracted to move to Brazil was Paulo Freire's approaches around the consciousness raising of, let me be aware of how I fit in this unequal world and what is my role in it. And if I'm on the side that experiences more oppression, how do we, you know, how do we support me or how could, or as I'm not on that side that's experienced the bucket loads of oppression, but on the side of someone who has had privilege with some costs along the way, how do I both, how can I be aware of that and put my journey together with folks who have different levels of oppression? My take on Mythopoetic is I learned a huge amount from it. I worked with a group of men in Brazil when I first moved here to be really in touch with ourselves. And, you know, I found some of Robert Bly's language around a wound and kind of, you know, normative trauma useful. And yet I found that we could easily get stuck looking at our own belly buttons if we didn't say, I need to take this to a political consciousness level as well. So again, not to say, you know, it's not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think having men have an awareness about that is quite useful. If it stays there, it becomes, it's what therapists can do. And some of my, you know, I'll say, I'll say tongue-in-cheek, some of my best friends are therapists. <laughs> my partner is you know, a therapist and public health person. Um, and so, you know, I live by that, learn by it, believe it, but at the same time to say, I don't stop there. I look at what's the political part that says, I'm called to call out the harm that happens beyond the space that I've lived in or been privileged enough or harmed enough in. Um, so that's, you know, I suppose, if, if, if we can get to a point that we say, there's some things we learned from the, and still learn about the mythopoetic moment. And I think a lot of men find the inner work really, really emancipating and useful on a journey. I hope your journey takes you to one of being aware of your own ghosts and traumas and demons, but I'm going to push you if you just stay there. Um, and so, you know, the kind of 
adjust your own mask, to use as they tell us on the airplane, like be aware, and then then be part of you know the person next to you. Um, we're either going down together or we're going to survive this together. So that if I continue that metaphor, it's like I also want you. You're not done after you put on your own mask, dude. Yes. Um, and that I think the biggest branch of the men's movement in the states is like every man and mankind project, the warrior weekend trainings. And yeah. I I don't hear political activism as an emphasis from them at all. And I think that's the main critique of those groups. Well, I mean, yeah, I think I think we often because um, we love to polarize things in the U.S., right? I mean, that's been our <laughs> signature from whatever, our original sin of, you know, the way this country's been founded is we love just to polarize, which is, um, I think there is a lot of very progressive, politicized pro-feminist men's work, but it looks upon the kind of, the, the inner work side is almost blasphemous, as kind of, rather than saying, let's see it as part of a journey, and part of a toolkit, to call it that, that helps us get to a gender-just world, not that it needs to be thrown out because it, um, let's look at it as, a, as part of a journey and say, let's call it into being more politicized. And on the political side, we can often get into this precious side of saying, no, it's all, you know, it's structural, it's systemic, and intersectional feminism that informs our work, you know, is all about structures. And to say, no, there's individuals too, and individuals need to be on journeys while we're trying to fix the structures too. Um, so yeah, trying to push us to a, you know, breaking out of a, it's either A or B thinking and say, it's all the above, um, let's each push ourselves on a journey to get better at it, not to be, I won't talk to you or I'll burn your book if you're not political enough, or on the, on the, you know, on the inner work to call it that, you know, I, I, you're, you're too angry on the political side, so I'll burn your book. Um, it's... Anyway, that's that's easy in an interview. <laughs> the two of us sitting here to yeah, say that, right? Um, it, it's really complex stuff, and you know, then let us add women's voices and let us add LGBTI plus voices and say, you know, that's kind of the four groupings, and then add racial justice voices because we need to talk to them too. Um, so then it becomes, you know, even more complicated to try to break out of our my way is the right way approach, um, but. I don't see what the choice is, but to find a, a melding of those approaches. Right. It's, it's, do you agree with this? It seems like the pro-feminist feminist men are mostly concerned with violence against women. And that's, that's their the, thrust. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I mean, that's been, I think that's been the space where we've listened to women's rights advocates, women in the space, has been, you know, what do you need from, you know, what, what do you expect or what do you think we should do as men? The first response is, well, stop men's violence. Um, help us be advocates in that space. And I think that's been an obvious and necessary one. Um, it touches on, you know, so many lives of a third of women in the world, you know, have or will experience some violence from a man at some point in their life. One in four, probably some kind of sexual violence. Um, Forty percent of men that we've, you know, in some surveys we've done have witnessed that violence growing up. 
So you know, it is it, it's an obviously urgent one, and it's been it's been kind of the one of the the first issue of first we need you to take care of this. Um, I don't think it's a checklist that it's like you know I think all these things come together, but it's also been where a lot of women's rights advocates have said we want you in the room as men as male identified individuals. Um, and so I think we've been able to find an urgency in that call, um, and that yeah, that's where you know Promunda's work started there, and also in HIV prevention and and the linkages between consensual sex, condom use, men's men's care for themselves and their partner. Um, those are the two issues. You know, funding is an issue as well. Those are the two issues that we initially had funding to work on. Um, and you know, a, a lot of the work in the U.S. as well. That's where there's been funding from the federal government to foundations as well. So, um, and where I think we could find easily, you know, we could sort of easily agree on the actions, um, or somewhat easily agree on the actions. The the Icelandic professor I interviewed was on a men's commission, and they they had to pick like two issues because they had a timeline, and they picked violence right. and parental leave to encourage men. To take leave. Yeah, I mean, I would say our we've gone a similar journey, which is, but not just leave, fatherhood in general, men's caregiving. Um, our, you know, among our biggest um, clusters of initiatives at the moment are that they're violence prevention and promoting men's involvement as as equitable caregivers. Um, um, yeah. Before we, I want to get into that in more detail, but I just wanted to say that when I was in Rio de Janeiro, I visited a. Uh, a, a low-income slum uh, favela and there were young men sitting on bicycles kind of guarding and I was told they probably won't live past 25 and you could see bullet holes in the walls in the favela and it was it was a terrible that the woman who showed me around had staph infection on her legs from walking mm -hmm. through the little crowded alleyways where they build houses from the sewage yeah. flowing. So I, that's an example of how men suffer from that kind of violence too. Yeah, I mean, my, uh, I mean, I, my dissertation research was in one of the favelas in Rio, looking at pathways into different versions of manhood, gang-related, and those who resisted gangs, those who, and, and gang-related often goes with a pretty misogynist uh, view of manhood in terms of you sort of own women, multiple partners, uh, you know, no one, including your female partner, able to question around consent or, you know, who's in charge of the household decisions or the relationship issues. Um, but also lots of young men who push back on it, who don't want to be uh, on the bicycles, you know, kind of part of the, the whole drug um, industry and very fearful of the three ways, you know, since the late 80s, mid 80s, favelas that had a three-way war going on. Drug, the drug trafficking groups, the police and militia groups who were kind of off-duty police that Bolsonaro and his, and his sons have ties to. Um, so yeah, the kind of protection groups, the police and drug trafficking gangs. I mean, it's, it, whatever language you want to, you want to use, the, the rates of mortality from homicides in favelas is typically far higher than almost any declared conflict in the world. Um, but no Brazilian government nor the UN would ever, you know, has ever declared it a conflict zone. Um, so yeah, it's a, you know, the degree of social exclusion 
um, that you know drives that combination of why young men would be attracted to being in, in gangs um, because it's a source of income, an immediate source of status, a source of protection, sexual company, protection, weaponry, um, and you know the um, and also yeah your life expectancy is late twenties early thirties um, or imprisonment. But the uh, Rio State Police um, have been much more inclined to arrest, well, sorry, to, uh, to, to summarily execute you rather than to deal with the challenges of arresting you, booking you, um, and then trying you in a fair court of law. Um, and that has changed, I mean, relatively little. At the same time, there's tremendous force of, you know, creative force. I mean, Brazil's most interesting music comes out of favelas. Mm. Um, a lot of its cultural stars, football players and musicians and other artists have come out of favelas in Rio and in Sao Paulo and elsewhere. Um, some of the most you know, amazing social movements that are having an impact in Brazil and beyond have been born in favelas here. And so, you know, I think um, whatever, whichever conclusion I ever had about a favela, I could change it in the same day of, it's horrible, it is home for millions of people. It is hopeless. It is full of optimism. Mm -hmm. It is violent. It's full of men who would do anything for their kids and have been involved fathers since the day their child was born. Um, there's violent men. There's pacifist men who could teach me about you know how to control my anger. Um, all in the you know all in the same. They're big complex places, and I think you know part of the conversation is try to try to look at that reality um, without falling into the, I probably spent, you know, at least an hour of my time over the many years that I've lived in Brazil saying, oh, you're working there because men are so violent. And I have given that talk many times of going, well, um, I know many middle class men who are violent and do this and this and this. In Rio, in favelas, I've seen men who do this. Um, so it's, yeah, they are amazing, challenging, you know, sites of social exclusion and sites of creativity, resilience. Yeah, resilience that is to you know make you uh, inspired. You know, in terms of the direction of your life. So it's all like the black neighborhoods in the states. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Um, before we leave Brazil in particular, I was so tickled that uh, Bolsonaro said. If you, this is before he got COVID, he said, if you wear a mask, then you're a fairy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, how, how, why, did, why in the world, after having people that were really liberal, like the last two, why in the world do we have a Trumpian Bolsonaro? Yeah, where do, where do we start? We spent a couple of hours on this. I mean... So, you know, Brazil's got a lot of things that follow U.S. trajectories, one being the massive proliferation of conservative evangelical churches. Uh -huh. So, I mean, that's one, one of many forces going on. About 40%, I have to check the numbers, but about 40% of Brazil's members of Congress have some affiliation with, um, with an evangelical church. Not all of those are conservative. There are a few senators and, um, and Congress and representatives who are progressive or centrist, even though they're evangelical, but I feel confident saying overall, they're pretty conservative. Then you had um, 
you had a middle class that was angry about the social justice that Lula and um, and Dilma Rousseff made happen. Um, you know, the 29, 30 million people lifted out of poverty in Brazil because of social protection, particular social protection policies, particularly cash transfers, and lots of other stuff. That's the most known one, but lots of other stuff. Middle class folks, and I can say that from family members here, they're they got angry at you know the the lower income folks could suddenly buy cars and fly on planes and be in the same shopping centers that you used to think were yours because you were middle class. Um, and there's more traffic on the streets because they could buy motorcycles and cars um, and not just stuck you know in line at the buses. Um, so that went into this perfect storm. Mm. And then you know the the workers party that Lula and and Husseini yeah. represented was the most progressive or the most law-abiding by calling out corruption. Now, it came back to bite them mm. because their own party had some issues of corruption. Well, Lula was They're, accused of corruption in some kind of apartment deal or something. That he, he was put in jail. He that. Um, almost every reasonable take on that story yeah. is that it was a true setup oh. uh, in terms of how that happened. Oh. Now, um, now, there were other things that their party did that was kind of looking away from corruption. His, uh, his chief of staff got held accountable and is still in prison for corruption. Lula let him take the fall. I mean, let him get convicted, if you want to put it that way. You don't particularly get to defend yourself saying, we're less corrupt than all the other 49 political parties. Um, <laughs> But they probably are among the least corrupt. But that's that's not exactly a very good campaign slogan. Not as corrupt as the other guys. It's not exactly a way that. Um, so they, you know, all, that also went into it. The kind of you went too far. Um, you went you you went too progressive. Um, there was some amazing stuff happening in the Lula and and Hussefi years. So kind of all that stuff came into a perfect storm. Mm. Uh, we have Steve Bannon and the likes giving Bolsonaro and his family advice on how to run campaigns. That a hate and anger-based campaign runs better than a hope, um, than a hope and justice space, justice and a social justice lens. So all the above, um, all the above, unfortunately. Do you think you'll get reelected? I don't know, I, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think Trump, I didn't think he could get elected in the first place. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's so wild west of, you know, is Lula going to run or is he going to have somebody else from his party run? Um, will the anger about Lula, you know, will his popularity, which, uh, you know, out, outpaces Bolsonaro's, will there be some political crisis that's, you know, will Bolsonaro get, have some other piece of evidence that come out, comes out? Although even if the evidence comes out, will it be like it is with Trump? The more we find out about January 6th, the more the far right just defends him because it was all in the, it was all to overcome a, you know, a tainted election in their eyes. I don't know. Um, I think wise people are probably hedging their bets. <laughs> um, I, okay, let's focus on Promundo. You you founded it in 1997. Why? What was what was the the light bulb that went off. So yeah, I co-founded it with a colleague, Miguel Fuentes. Miguel worked in the HIV space. He's a public health 
guy. I came out of the gender lens. Um, I had mentioned to you the study that I worked on with UNICEF of asking that question, why aren't we talking to the men? Um, and as we looked at data about HIV transmission, decisions, who was there, what was up, um, as we looked at you know the rates of men's violence against women in Brazil said, we need to do this. And there was a great confluence of some women's rights activists, women who supported, you know, we need men in this space. We need NGOs that dedicate themselves to engaging men. Um, Miguel and I made the pitch to some funders and said, you know, what we're talking about, we kind of innocuously speak of violence against women, and the same expression is used in Portuguese, um, without saying it's like we strip that sentence of, um, of an object, which is, who is, or sorry, the subject, who is carrying that out? Um, and we need to affirm that we are talking about men's use of violence against women. Um, and so enough, you know, thoughtful program officers at foundations, some UN partners, and obviously some other folks working on the issue. We started our NGO the same year as two other NGOs in Brazil were doing work on this. Us in Rio, a group called Instituto Papai, which means kind of the, the daddy institute, in Recife, and a group in Sao Paulo called ECHOS that works on sexuality and communication. Um, and we also said, we're going to do this together. It's a huge country. <laughs> we kind of you know, backed each other up. We did research together, advocacy together, designed approaches together, um, and got some brave funders who said, we can fund you, and if any women's rights organizations get, you know, get upset with us, we'll tell them why, and we will tell you to go work with them. <laughs> we said, OK. We will. Um, so a lot of, yeah, kind of really cool confluence. Some individuals out of the, the LGBTI plus field um, supporting our work as well. So yeah, it was a, a kind of, and also just an exciting time of Brazil stepping out of, you know, its new constitution and a lot of flourishing of civil society groups coming out of the military dictatorship and then straight into um, popular elections because there was the kind of what the the handover first to to Congress and then direct elections and then a new constitution and then yeah just amazing civil society um, spaces to talk about this stuff um, and then like starting a global organization you get funders how do you reach out how do you organize it <coughs> yeah. Um, you need a there. Um, keep talking. Okay. Um, I mean, the international part was. <coughs> oh, you okay? Yeah. Okay. Was partly by design, partly by you know happenstance. We um, when we started the window in, in Brazil, the, you want to stop for a minute? You're okay. <coughs> I guess I better. 